Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have become real to us because we believe that helps us draw more power out of the scriptures and we need all the power we can get from those divine instruments. I'm your host, Kerry Mulstein, and this is a special feature that we're doing as we study Isaiah. I'm really dedicated towards helping everyone not only learn to understand Isaiah, but I hope learn to love Isaiah. That's the name of my my commentary is uh, learning to love Isaiah. Uh, but I just really hope everyone will learn to love Isaiah. And as one of the things that we're doing to help you with that is I've taken little videos that I've made for my classes. Uh, so when I teach the Isaiah class, there's more than we can cover, even though we're sometimes just covering two chapters a day that we can only still do about maybe 30% of what I'd like to do. So I take at least one topic and most days of class, I have a little video that the students are supposed to watch uh, that explains some things for them. Uh, that they we just won't have time to do in class. And I've decided to make those into a feature uh, for everyone on my podcast. So this introduction will be at the front of each one of those. And then what you're going to have is the opportunity to watch or listen to. And, and sometimes I will make reference to pictures because uh, when I made this, I wasn't making it for a podcast. And so I didn't have just audio listeners in mind. So I apologize for that. But uh, I'll have both the, the uh, video on YouTube and I'll have the audio on uh, my typical podcast. And I think you'll be all right without the pictures uh, 99% of the time. Uh, but uh, you'll just get what my students uh, get. And I'll sometimes say we're going to talk about this in class, but we won't talk about it in class. Hopefully those elements we'll talk about in the regular podcast episodes. I'll also just say that I'm doing tons of interviews with other people on Isaiah for their podcast. Some of those will be joint podcast broadcasts, so you'll get to hear them as well. And sometimes uh, you'll just have to go to the other podcast. But each week I'll try and make you aware of where you can go to get more to help you study Isaiah. And then, of course, the scriptures and your time pondering is the biggest place and also commentaries such as mine or uh, those by some of my colleagues. So I hope you enjoy this little uh, video or uh, audio version of what I do for my class. Okay, so we're just going to have this little video to cover some of the important historical background of Isaiah so that we can spend more time in class going through the chapters in Isaiah. First, it's important to understand Isaiah's ministry was very, very long. This uh, chart allows you to see uh, that his ministry lasts through a number of kings of Assyria, through all of the last kings of Israel, and through a number of kings of Judah. Uh, and in fact, I don't know why they cut it off here, because at least he lives uh, up into Manasseh's reign, although we don't really have uh, prophecies from that time period, but I would extend that bar up this far. He's contemporaries with people like Hosea and Micah, and probably even a little bit Amos. Um, so his, he's contemporaries with a number of prophets. Uh, his, his ministry is for a very, very long time. He's very young at the time his ministry begins, probably around your age when uh, he gives the famous Emmanuel prophecy that we'll talk about in a while. Uh, so he's, he's a young prophet at that time, but he prophesies for a very long time. Um, one of the things that will help us understand a lot of the, the background of Isaiah is to understand Jerusalem and some of the political events going on in Judah at the time, but especially Jerusalem. So, if we were to look at this map, uh, you'll see that Jerusalem is right up, I don't know why they have it on the downside here, it's actually on this side of these high hills, this, this ridge of high hills that goes throughout Israel 
It's right up on this side. It's about 2,600 feet above sea level. Obviously, the Mediterranean Sea is sea level, and the Dead Sea is about 1,400 feet below sea level. So it's very high, perched up on top of these hills. Um, the part of Jerusalem that David conquers and that is the capital of uh, Judah for most of its history is this little part right here that's called the Ophel. And you can see it's surrounded by steep valleys. Up here is, is the mount where the temple will be. But it's got these steep valleys on either side, well, on all three of these sides, and, and so really the only way to approach is from the north. Um, but it even has some valleys over here. It's not an easy approach, but it's easier. Uh, this gives it a, a natural protection. So this map shows you, again, these steep valleys here and here. This one coming along here. And then they build uh, the temple up on top of this mountain. Over here, you can start to see these valleys that protect even the northern side. This is to give you a, a picture of it today. Now, this road is actually about um, 30 to 40 feet higher uh, than it was in the time of Isaiah. It's been built up so much over time as they've built roads here. So this was even steeper and more difficult to get up to. But this area right here is the Ophel, or that, that part that we're talking about. Uh, you can see kind of where the valley is on this side. It's a little bit harder to see, but you can see it. And you can see the Hinnom Valley coming around this way. But this is where the city was during uh, David and Hezekiah's day, although it changes in Hezekiah's day. This is a picture from the southern side, so that other picture was looking down the Kidron Valley here. Um, here is the Tyropian Valley, which is about 60 feet higher than it was uh, in Isaiah's day, but still you can, you can see how it comes down steeply like this and goes back up. Uh, again, just to give you an idea of those valleys um, where this one breaks up the city of David in Ophel, but uh, no one else says that's an interesting thing they've done. But you can see that area and where the temple is built right there. Um, this is an artist's rendition of what it would have looked like in, say, David or Hezekiah's day, uh, the beginning of Hezekiah's day. Uh, just so you can kind of picture these steep valleys and the walls and the roofs and how things were built on tiers as they uh, went up. And this is actually David's day because he's got the tabernacle up where the temple will eventually be built. Uh, a key element is the ability to control water. They can have a large city here because there is a spring. It's the Gihon Spring. The spring is a little lower down on the hill than is ideal for protection. So the spring, this, this picture didn't draw it really accurately, but the spring's going to be down like here. Um, and that is not where you want your wall. You want your wall up on the hill higher. So what they did was they built their wall around where it's best to have the wall, and then they built a narrow walkway with walls on either side and a tower, and the spring was right underneath this tower. Ignore this part. We once thought the, there's a pool there, and we once thought that there was another tower there, and now we're kind of thinking that there isn't. It's still up uh, in the air a little bit, but probably not. But this tower here for sure existed, and... Um, it's underneath here where the spring is. So when Solomon is anointed king at the Gihon Spring, most likely what they mean is it's up on top of the tower. It may be underneath where the spring is, but it's probably up on top of the tower at the city gate. That's where all the most important transaction uh, of, of business and political and social things will happen is in the gate. All right. In any case, you can see this. Uh, these walls that have been built on either side with this uh, way to walk down and get to where the spring is. Uh, here's what that looks like today. There's my wife. Say hi to my wife. But there you have the walls uh, 
um, coming down. There's Dr. Dr. Chadwick, if anyone knows him. Uh, but this is the wall on one side. Uh, this is looking back up with walls on either side, so you can see where that narrow walkway was that came down uh, to the Gihon Spring itself. Now, in a little while, we'll show you. Uh, I'll show you some video of the Gihon Spring and a tunnel that's there. But this is right here where the water springs forth. Um, so that's the Gihon Spring and their source of water, and they had this this um, gate that would come down to protect it. But they would also let water come out from the Gihon Spring, and it would go along here and water all of these fields. Uh, and that's an important element. Um, it's also worth noting that David built a huge palace here in this area. And um, then when Solomon built a new palace up in this area, this became an administrative center, the kind of center where officials like Isaiah, who seemed to be an official, um, would work. So I think there's a fairly decent chance that Isaiah worked right in that area. This reconstruction where you can see Temple, Solomon's Palace, and what was David's Palace, it then becomes an administrative center. Uh, this is a great drawing because it also shows you that the gate should be down here. They don't show how the gate comes down, but it shows you how the water would come out then and water these areas. So, for example, this is called the King's Garden, um, where all the, the water comes out, and it's a nice fertile area down there. Right at the beginning of that, so you've got this conduit, right? Here's the, uh, or ditch you could call it, irrigation ditch, where the water comes out, and there was a, a conduit or an irrigation ditch that would flow along here, and water would come out. Um, and right in this area, there was enough water that they would actually do their washing there with soap that is called fuller soap so the king james translators call this the fuller's field so when isaiah is told to take his son by the conduit of the upper pool so we've got the pool here and you've got the conduit uh, and, and meet the king by the fuller's field this is exactly where he's talking about that prophecy happens right there all right here's another uh, picture. Sorry about the. This was under glass. This is actually right by Hezekiah's tunnel. This picture. So there's a reflection there. But you get a better idea of the gate, and the pool, and then the fields that come along. They don't show necessarily the conduit here, but the fields. And right around here would be the Fuller's Field. Um, so that's where that takes place. Now here's the political setting for this, and we've gone over this a little bit, but not enough. And, and we did it in the uh, historical setting. Now I want you to see how it works for. Um, this particular prophecy in Isaiah. I have 2 Nephi 17 up here. I should change that because it's really Isaiah 7. Um, but in any case, uh, it's, it's quoted in 2 Nephi 17. Um, you have three kingdoms at play here. Remember that Syria has decided they want to rebel against Assyria. And in order to do this, they know they can't withstand them on their own. They're hoping that with an alliance they can, and so they convince Israel to help them. It seems like perhaps there's even a coup to put someone on the throne who will uh, help them. And so now you have Syria and Israel allied against Assyria, and they want to force Judah to do that. Um, and Judah has not been so sure, and so a rumor has started that they will run another coup, that they will kill the king and put someone on the throne who will work with them. And Ahaz has heard this, so he's very, very nervous about that, right? So you get these three kings who are at play when you have this prophecy. You have King Ahaz, uh, king of Judah. He will also be referred to sometimes just as Jerusalem or as the house of David. 
right? You have King Rezin, who is the king of Syria. Aram is the Hebrew word for Syria, uh, and so they, uh, he's called Aram, or sometimes just Damascus, which is his capital, just like uh, Judah is referred to sometimes as king, by King Ahaz's name, or by Jerusalem, and so on. You get the same thing with all these, so sometimes they're just referred to as Damascus. And then you have King Pekah, who is also the son of Remaliah. Sometimes he's called the son of Remaliah instead of Pekah. He's referred to as Ephraim, uh, representing that northern kingdom, or Samaria, which is his capital. So all of those are different ways of referring to these individuals. And remember that Isaiah's prophecy takes place when he meets Ahaz there by the fuller's field and tells him not to worry about the threats made by these two um, rulers against him. Uh, he's not so sure he wants to listen. Isaiah says, ask for a sign. And since he's not so sure he wants to actually do what he's being told to do, he says, oh, I don't want to tempt God. So Isaiah says, well, I'll give you a sign anyway. And then he says, a child will be born. His name will be Emmanuel, or God is with us. And we'll talk about that prophecy in class. But this is the setting for that prophecy. Uh, then what's known as the uh, Syro-Ephraimite War begins, where Syria and, and Israel do go to battle against Judah over this very issue. Um, so they'll, they'll come to battle against them. Um, and here is that prophecy, Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus, Rezin. So those are the people we just talked about. And within three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, you surely shall not be established. So, again, we'll talk about the prophecy more in class, but this gives you an idea of how those names that we just discussed are used. And by recognizing the, uh, the geographical uh, implications that, that Syria is to the north and Damascus is his capital, and that Ephraim is a name for all the kingdom of Israel, and that Samaria is its capital, you, once you realize those things, then in any number of prophecies, you'll start to recognize that they're talking, oh, they're talking about Syria, or oh, they're talking about the kingdom of Israel. So that's very helpful. Let's fast forward a few generations to King Hezekiah, because it's in his day that some really, really important things happen. Um, in his day, he does rebel against Assyria. Assyria comes down and starts to wipe out the countryside. Uh, their king, uh, Sennacherib, is vicious and brutal in his destruction. You can recognize when Sennacherib has been to a town archaeologically all over uh, the Holy Land because there is a larger layer of ash than uh, you'll find left by anyone else. He burns and destroys like no one ever, uh, no one else ever does. Um, he is destructive. Hezekiah has probably underestimated his opponent here. In any case, Hezekiah does rebel. We'll get into that war a little bit more. Um, Hezekiah goes through a number of religious reforms that we've already talked about uh, when we've done the historical uh, setting. And so we have all those uh, religious reforms that, that helps Israel be able to turn to God during the time of their rebellion when they need help. And he does rebel against Assyria, as we've said. But I want to show you some interesting things that happen in Jerusalem. So, up until Hezekiah's day, this is the area where people lived. And it's got the Temple Mount and this Ophel area. It's about 32 acres. And the largest it gets from the time of David to the time of Hezekiah is about 8,000 people. Early in Hezekiah's reign, 
it explodes to uh, 130 acres and 30,000 people. So you have several hundred years where it maintains around an 8,000 person population. Now these numbers are rough figures. We, we find the number of houses in an excavated area and excavate a few areas and average them and then extrapolate guessing that it's that same density everywhere else. It may not be exactly that, but it still gives us an accurate picture. So it's, it's more than tripled in size uh, as far as people go and, and more than, well, about quadrupled in size as far as, as geographic area goes. This happens because of the destruction of the Northern Kingdom. This, all this growth are refugees from the Northern Kingdom, people who flee uh, as the Assyrians, Tiglath Pileser III and so on, are destroying people in the Northern Kingdom. You have all sorts of people that flee to Jerusalem um, for refuge and so they have to find somewhere to build so they will increase the size of the city and it will just grow here towards the west up under what's called the western hill or the the uh the, it's also called the hill of zion or zion's hill um and so think about that that means that suddenly within hezekiah's day he has to deal with his population in his capital city tripling and the size quadrupling, that's a lot of uh, things to deal with. And what's more, it's now the case that two-thirds of the people in his capital are actually uh, from the kingdom of Israel. They're not from the kingdom of Judah. Um, and so he will have to make some overtures to them and try and, and work to uh, incorporate them and build unity. It's probably why he, na he names his son Manasseh, a northern tribe, um, as part of those uh, reaching out efforts, conciliatory efforts. Um, he also will have to build a huge wall to protect all of these people as they, you know, they've had a wall to protect them when they were in this area, but now they have to build a wall to protect all of them. We call it the broad wall because of its size. Then, as he does rebel, just before the siege against Jerusalem, when all of the countryside has been uh, decimated, it jumps another 10,000 and another 20 acres. These are refugees from within Judah itself. As the Assyrian army marches through Judah, you get these Judahite uh, countryside folks who flee to Jerusalem for protection, and so you get uh, these refugees where it, it grows yet again, and so Hezekiah is constantly dealing with trying to uh, build the city. So here's a map that's at the Jerusalem center um, where you can see the hills uh, and so on. All of this area here, it's, it's called the College sometimes in uh, the King James Version. It's also called Zion. This is the Hill of Zion, and that's just part of why this whole area starts to be referred to as Zion. Um, all of this area is, it grows during Hezekiah's day, and this big wall around here, this broad wall Hezekiah has to build. It's a huge undertaking. All right, this is just a, a picture taken from the Mount of Olives so that you can see this is... Uh, this area here, right, right there, is this area. All of this is what Hezekiah is going to have to protect as he suddenly has people settling in that area. And he has to get them water, and he has to get uh, a wall around them, right? Here is the remains of that broad wall. It was, would have been much higher, but you can see how broad it was. Uh, truly a huge wall. Now, you can see here, actually, the remains of a house. They did uh, take down, they dissembled some houses uh, as they built this wall. 
um, in order to build the wall, and I guess the topography was such that they felt like they needed to go through rather than around the houses. And Isaiah actually even uh, mentions that in his prophecies, that they've been destroying houses for the wall. Uh, and so here's a, a little archaeological touchstone with one of Isaiah's prophecies. Hezekiah also has a water issue, as I mentioned. Um, remember that the Gihon Spring comes down to this gate that's down here, and then the water would come out to water these fields. Well, he knows that the Assyrian army is soon going to be camped here. He doesn't want to give them water, so he wants to feed the water away from this, this older conduit or ditch that feeds water out here. And he wants to get water out to where the people uh, in all parts of the city can get to it. So there is a, uh, an area here where they can collect the water. He just needs to funnel the water away from here and over to here. So in order to do that, he builds a tunnel. He carves a huge tunnel underneath um, tons of rock. He has his workers start from this side and his workers start from this side in a pretty amazing engineering feat. They must have been following some natural um, fissures there, but they have to carve out this tunnel so that he can get the, the water to go from here over to the Pool of Siloam. Uh, you're familiar with the Pool of Siloam from a story in John chapter 9 where the Savior uh, is up here at the temple and he heals a man who was born blind and, and tells him to go down to the Pool of Siloam to wash and he washes his eyes there and he can see. Um, but that exists because of this tunnel that Hezekiah built um, that goes underneath. Here's a picture of the tunnel, but what I'll do, I'll show you just a couple of clips of uh, video um, we uh, ran through here with a GoPro camera real quickly one time, so I'll just show you, uh, I'll, I'll fast forward, you won't want to watch all 12 minutes of this, but I'll, I'll show you a couple of parts um, and we'll, we'll fast forward through it, alright? So, um, here you go, you can see uh, us going down and right there, that's where the water starts, that's the beginning of the Gihon Spring right there, that's the source of the water. Um, if we click forward a little bit, you can see this tunnel that that Hezekiah's workers carved. They actually found in there, um, and we'll keep fast forwarding a little bit, they found in there an inscription that's now in a museum in, in Istanbul, but uh, there's a replica here, uh, an inscription where they describe how the workers started from one side to the other, and uh, as they got close they could hear each other, um, and they made some adjustments until they, they got the tunnels to, the, to match. You can actually see where that happens. You can see the chisel marks in the side uh, going one direction, and then you get a couple of places like right here where the tunnel takes a couple little jogs as they figure out they need to angle a different way to get to the other side. And then there's a place where the, the, you can see the, the chisel marks going one direction and the chisel marks going another direction meet, and that's the place where they must have met. And they talk about that on the, the plaque. Here's another one of those places where they, they took a little jog um, to correct the course to get going the right way to meet up. You can see sometimes it's pretty low. Um, you can see the, the water still rushing through there. Um, so sometimes it's, it's uh, pretty low, sometimes it's pretty tall where they hit a place where the fissure was naturally kind of tall, but uh, sometimes you have to bend over to get through there. Here you can stand up straight. And they have little places where it must have been off to the side, but they would have put um, little um, uh, lamps there to help light their way as they haul and think they not only have to call, carve this out, they have to haul the rock they're carving out back out and get rid of it. So this is a pretty serious undertaking. Um, here you can see some niches where they put lamps and here we are coming up to the end. 
Um, we got there first thing in the morning, but there was already a Jewish fellow there doing some ritual washings. Um, and then you come out here. Um, so that is the, the Pool of Siloam. Um, or the, the Hezekiah's Tunnel. Uh, that's not the Pool of Siloam, but we get out near the, the Pool of Siloam. But anyway, there's a nice picture of it uh, inside there. Now, once he's fortified Jerusalem, we, I want to deal a little bit with the destruction that happens um, around the countryside, and, and in particular, uh, two towns. Um, we know that the Assyrians destroy all sorts of forts, and the last two they're going to destroy is one called Azekah, and then they get to the last town besides Jerusalem, which is Lachish. Um, and Lachish, the battle at Lachish was huge. Uh, it was a, a giant town. You can see the approach here and coming up, and there was a gate, and then another set of gates there. Um, part of the reason this is so important, there are these five valleys that allow access. So you've got these hills that are hard to get up through, but there are five valleys where there are little streams or, or creeks or rivers that, that go along, and they form these valleys. So the Israelites built these big um, cities to, to protect each one of these valleys, and so you've got um, Gezer here, and you've got um, Beit Shemesh here, and you've got um, Azekah here, and then Marisha here, it's also called Guverin, uh, Marisha and Guverin, and then you've got Lachish here. Lachish is the biggest of the fortifications, all right, and so it will be the last one that the Assyrians will attack before then coming up along this uh, ridge route to uh, Jerusalem. But in any case, um, Lachish is a huge city up on a hill like this, as you can see, with walls all the way around it, and here's where that entryway was with the set of two gates. Um, because the Assyrians didn't conquer Jerusalem, this would be the highlight for them of the entire campaign, and so um, Sennacherib would actually carve reliefs of the battle uh, on his palace walls. Um, you can see again the the gates here, they tried to get through the gates and were unsuccessful, so they actually had to build a siege ramp that went up right here and got into the city right here, or going over the top of the walls. But again, you can see the walls and the, the gate there. Here are some pictures from the, the walls of Sennacherib's palace, where you can see um, these kind of siege uh, ramps that people were going up. You can see the walls here with people up on the walls shooting down and throwing things down. They've got um, siege towers here um, with people on the towers as they push these up and try and, and get uh, in there and they've got ladders that people are climbing up and so on. Uh, on some of the reliefs they show the prisoners that the Assyrians are torturing and so on. Here is the inside of, so here's the outer gate, here's the inner gate. Uh, you can see the towers from the gate and there's the threshold. That is the threshold that they would have been pushing the door up against trying to keep the Assyrians from getting inside. Um, but Lachish falls, um, and then they go to Jerusalem. So this is looking from inside the city of David. Uh, there's the Kidron Valley, and then back up the hill, this is the Mount of Olives. But it's right here that the Assyrian army would have camped. And you remember the story how he sends some officials from Lachish um, along with a small contingent. This is where they camp, and they come, and they talk to the people outside the walls, trying to scare them, and they talk in Hebrew, and the officials don't want them to because they don't want the people to get scared, but they... They talk in Hebrew um, and so on. But then remember that Jerusalem is miraculously despaired. Um, they aren't destroyed. And so in class, uh, remind me, and this is part of what we'll talk about, 
is what we can learn from the miraculous delivery of Jerusalem. So that is our, our video uh, for today.